Hey, what's going on? Welcome back to the James Kennedy Podcast. I hope you've all had a better week than I have had because my week's been interesting. I feel like I may have tempted fate on last week's episode when I said in the intro that my life at the moment is very unrock and roll because I'm barely leaving the house and mostly what I'm doing is, you know, writing my second book in a hoodie with a beard and eating cereal all day. And then I left the house and it all went downhill from there. Unfortunately, at this stage, I can't say too much about it because there's a legal process underway. But those of you who follow me on social media will know all about what I'm talking about. And for those of you that haven't got a clue what I'm talking about, rest assured, I will be revealing all of the details in copious and consistent amounts very, very shortly. But just to give you a little taste, because it's not fair to leave somebody hanging like that. You can't say, hey man, some shit went down, but I can't tell you nothing about it. I wouldn't do that to you guys. So just to give you a little insight as to what I'm talking about here, for those of you that don't know already, your man here may or may not have been assaulted by three plainclothes police officers whilst innocently sitting in his car on Wednesday night. You know, that may or may not have happened, depending on who you ask and depending whether that person happens to work for the South Wales Police Department. Of course, I have the injuries, both psychological and physical, to to live with as a result of the uh, altercation that may or may not have happened. Um, But I made the fatal error of forgetting to take a witness and a camera crew out with me that night. So we shall see what unfolds as the inevitably pointless legal complaints procedure plays out over this week or however long it's going to take for them to investigate themselves and undoubtedly find nothing. But until then, I'm going to be a good boy. I'm going to, you know, at least give them the benefit of the doubt to uh, to see what comes back from those guys, you know. And when my cynicism is confirmed, then I'll, I'll at least be able to, you know, move on from the waiting game and give you guys the full detailed story of exactly what went down that night. So hold that thought because this is far from the last you're going to hear about it from me. But in the meantime, we're going to continue as normal and get on with the podcast as if uh, nothing ever happened. As per usual, have you subscribed to the podcast or left a star rating or review? If you haven't, please go and do it now before we get started, and I'll love you forever. Now, today's guest is probably sick and tired of being introduced like this, but I personally think it's pretty damn awesome, so I'm going to say it again anyway. Today's guest is the youngest member of parliament, taking office three years ago at the age of 23. She's an old school lefty from a working class background and she is most definitely fighting the good fight. We're lucky to have her inside Parliament and we're lucky to have her with us on the podcast today. So from Nottingham East, Nadia Whittam, how are you doing? Hey, I'm good, thanks, James. How are you doing? I'm pretty good, thanks, man. Yeah, I mean, I'm marvelling at that awesome, very warm and cosy looking scarf that you've wrapped yourself up in there. I'm very <laughs> envious of that. that. That was a very smart move. I haven't been as smart with my attire today as I freeze my bones off in, in a very cold South Wailing studio. It was the best purchase ever. I've got my office in Westminster is like a fridge. So we're all like sat here with blankets and turtlenecks and stuff. Well, I guess that'll be good news to everyone listening to know that the MPs are suffering the effects of the cold as well. And you're not just <laughs> sitting there in your, you know, your gold plated palaces with central heating and stuff, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so diving, we're going to dive right in if that's cool. I wanted to start by asking you if we could get a kind of an MOT on where things are at currently within the Labour Party. Because it's a kind of age-old cliche, isn't it? That on the left, which is where I position myself, that we're, we're mostly better at fighting ourselves than we are at fighting, you know, the common enemy. And I, I, it yeah. certainly feels from where I'm looking from that the, the Labour Party has had a lot of this going on recently. The party does seem very 
disunited like there's a lot of different factions within the party oftentimes working against each other um so i'd be very interested to start out by getting your take on this as someone who's now been working within the party and within parliament for the past three years um, to get your take on what your feeling is about the culture currently within the labor party so i I think the mood currently in the party is really positive. You know, it feels like we're on the brink of a Labour government. Polling's been fantastic. Um, and even with the, the poll bounce that Rishi Sunak's had, we're still significantly ahead. So people are excited for the general election, whenever that might be. And I think in, in a lot of ways, there's nothing like a, a general election and being on the brink of government to unite the party. Mm. I... I know what you mean about sort of party unity and some of the challenges that there have been, but the way that I think about this, I basically think that Labour's always been a broad church. We've always had people with different opinions who come from different traditions and different factions. And actually, I, I think in a lot of ways, that's kind of part of our strength. Right. Because like, as a party, we're we're a bit like a coalition where lots of different ideas can find their home and if we're to win the next general election we need to to also win round uh, a coalition of different people and different different groups in society to vote for us so uh, i i think it is in many ways a positive thing but i guess the important question is how we deal with disagreements when when we have them hmm. it's not a problem having disagreements how we deal with them and for me that has to be through party democracy through members organizing debating voting yeah that's an interesting point i hadn't considered that actually because the left is a broad church isn't it you know what i mean we say the left as if it's just this one specific thing which you know i'm sure the right would consider it that way to be but the left it it does represent quite a broad range of um perspective so i suppose it would be unusual if that wasn't represented within the labor party and exactly like you said as well it's a great point i mean you know that's all very well as long as it's not functioning as a hindrance to the party's ability to function as an effective opposition yeah, yeah and that kind of brings me on to the next thing i wanted to ask you which is i i was a big jeremy corbyn fan and still am you know i was part of the whole you know corbyn mania fan club and i see what happened to him as being a, an example of the thing that i just described at the start about you know the left being better at fighting amongst itself than it is against the you know the common enemy so i'd love to get your thoughts now as you know an insider you know as somebody you know working with inside the party and in with inside parliament as to what your thoughts are on why that whole movement ended and and what went down with corbyn i know it was before your time in parliament but i'd, I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are on that what what, what do you think happened there I mean, kind of taking it from the start of the movement, because that was so exciting for me and for for so many young people, but not just young people, people who had been let down for generations by successive governments. And we were had a, a, just an extremely cruel conservative government at the time. I, I think we didn't imagine that things could possibly get any worse. And now here we are. And. Among that, there was the, the leadership election that Jeremy Corbyn stood in, and he was putting forward a different platform. He was opposing austerity. He was reimagining what our society could look like. And that inspired 
hundreds of thousands of people. And we saw that with how close we came to winning the, the general election in 2017. But unfortunately, we lost the 2019 election. I think there are various reasons for that. Um, one of them, I, I think it would have been very difficult to win an election for on Brexit. And we saw that with the number of people who voted Green or Lib Dem. Right. And I, I think the other thing, so I, I'm very supportive of the 2019 manifesto. There's not a single policy in there that I think was a bad policy. But I think the problem with a snap election is that you don't get time to build support for those ideas. And that's why it's important to to be building policy ideas now and getting people behind them well in advance of a general election. Yeah, 100%. And it's interesting that you mentioned people defecting to the Lib Dems and the Greens, because that's exactly what I did after the whole Corbyn debacle, um, was I defected to the Greens. I joined the Green Party, where I still am to this day, and it's a party that I really believe in and really support. But unfortunately, for you know, because of the, the electoral system that we've got, the first-past-the-post system that we've talked about in the podcast on previous episodes, you know, we the reality is, is that the only party that can remove the Tories is Labour. So I'm glad to hear that, you know, the party is a lot more unified now because we have got to get these guys out, man. You know, of all of the issues affecting people's lives and society to do with, you know, equality, poverty, the environment, justice, you know, we, we can't, we can't tackle any of those issues as long as the Tories are in. We have got to get these guys out. And our only hope for that is labor. So if you guys haven't got your game together, then we're doomed. You know, so yeah. I'm glad to, that you feel that the party is unified and is ready to pose a strong and unified and effective opposition to the Tories because we have got to get them gone. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think that, of course, there there are things that are priorities for me to be in the manifesto. There are things that I want us to be going further on. Um, I think that democracy within the party is also important, again, because going back to that point about um us being a broad church that depends on us having strong democratic processes in the party because it allows us to debate our different ideas to disagree but to do it well and then to hopefully come out with better politics at the end of it so that that is something that that needs to change but i suppose that as as you say all of us want a labor government we all understand that while we might have slightly different views about what that Labour government should be doing, what it should be prioritising, we can only do any of those things if we're in government. Yeah, yeah. I had um, Kevin Brennan on the podcast a few episodes back. I don't know if you know him. He's the MP for Cardiff West. Oh, yeah, he's great. Yeah, he's cool, man. I, and I asked him the same question and he said to me, he said, well, one day in power is worth a thousand days in opposition. And, you know, and, and it's a great point because, you know, I suppose it's easy for us, all of us to, you know, to, to always criticize the opposition. But it's only when you're actually behind the wheel can you actually affect, yeah, you know, that's, regulatory... That's and Kevin has said exactly those words to me before. Oh, really? Exactly right. <laughs> I was really impressed because I thought he rattled that off, you know, off the cuff in our conversation, you know, but, but now it appears he says it to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now I feel like I've dobbed him in there. <laughs> you have, and I'm going to tell him. <laughs> well, Kevin is, uh, yeah, he's, he's an awesome dude, man. And I actually saw Kevin in September because I was speaking inside the House of Lords. I've never been in the House of Parliament ever before, not even as a tourist. And I got invited to, to say a few words on a, a select committee hearing about, you know, the music industry post-Brexit and that sort of thing. And obviously, you know, Kevin is a big advocate for that issue. So Kevin was there and he was brilliant as always. But for me as a first timer, it was just really weird being inside the place that I've only ever seen on telly before, you know, and it's the yeah. place where it's the room where it happens. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's the walls of power. So for you as a 23 year old to get elected uh, into uh, being a member of parliament, that's a hell of a gig, mate, and a hell of an achievement. And I'm fascinated by what your early experience must have been like being thrown straight into that world. I mean, what was it like? It was wild and honestly it was such a blur. It happened just before Christmas. Um, so I was elected in the December twenty nineteen election. And I remember thinking, like, oh, over over Christmas I'll have time to process this. And I just I didn't. And every time there was a, a short break, I think, oh, I'll have time to process this then, because this whole thing is wild. And I just sort of never have, but this is just my my new reality, my new life now. So right. here we are. But I mean, when it happened, so I was selected, I was elected by um, Labour members in Nottingham East to be their parliamentary candidate. And then I think it was just the day afterwards that the snap election was called. So that was mad. I was working, um, but could only get part-time work. So I was looking for other temp work. Um, I wasn't expecting to win the selection to be Labour's candidate, to be honest, and I don't think anyone really was expecting me to win it. But I was, no one was more surprised than than me and my family. It was a lot for us to get used to. And then the election came on on the Friday or on on the Thursday. I was not not an MP. I was elected, had the weekend, and then on the Monday was straight into parliament and it was a huge culture shock it was uh, i I mean i definitely felt like i didn't belong as a lot of people do here because parliament wasn't built for people like us yeah and that was something that i spoke about in my maiden speech that i didn't come here to become part of the like part of the furniture i came here to, to shake up the system to be part of that change and to amplify the voices of people in my community who haven't been heard or have been silenced by Tory politicians. Hey man, and good for you, man. Yeah, I mean, like I said, you know, we're very lucky to have you there. Um, oh. But I mean, it just must be crazy, man. I can't imagine that at the age of twenty-three. I mean, I, I'm sure you've um, you've been there a few years now, three years in the game, so you're probably a lot more well adjusted to it now, and it's become a new normal. You know, would you say that's the case? Are you a lot more comfortable there now? It still doesn't really feel comfortable, actually. But I don't think that's a bad thing. I think if you feel comfortable in this place, that was set up to serve very different mm. class interests right um that was set up to to be a place for men to work as well not for people of color yeah not for lgbt people then you're, you're probably moving a bit too far away from the community you're supposed to be here to represent mm. so i don't think it's a bad thing that i don't feel comfortable here Mm, yeah that's a great point well made as well i mean yeah the second you start getting too comfortable slapping backs in the uh in the smoking room then you know you've uh you've turned to the dark side you know <laughs> yeah. 
So you're in a really interesting position then, because you are, I suppose, an outsider in many ways. I mean, you know, you're you're not from a political background. You're not part of the, you know, the landed elite. You know, you're one of us. You're from a working class background. So it's you've got an interesting and unique perspective on it all, I suppose, because, again, you are relatively new to the game as well. So I'd be very interested to know what your observations are now that you're sort of inside the belly of Parliament on how true it is that a lot of people's perceptions about how Parliament actually functions. You know, in pubs up and down the country, there's all this talk about how they're all the same. You know, they're all in the pockets of big business and, you know, politicians essentially exists to protect vested interests not public interest and we don't really have any direct experience with that world to disprove that so it's easy to be cynical but what is your experience having now spent three years in the belly of the beast um on on how that machinery operates i mean is it mostly made up of hard-working people who are genuinely working for the best interest of their constituents or are you seeing the invisible hand of outside influence over some of your constituents over some of your fellow um members of parliament obviously i'm not asking you to name names on a podcast but you know what, what's your general feeling as you uh, as you try to operate in navigate this new world it's very strange seeing it up close i think i I can honestly say for mps on my side of the house that while we don't all agree on every single issue because that would be impossible and while we might come from slightly different political traditions that people really are there to serve their communities and serve their constituencies on the other side I'm sure that there are plenty of people who perhaps came into politics for that reason, but they just have a completely different worldview. Right. And the things that they vote for are things that harm our communities and basically punish people for being poor. Um, I see a lot of MPs who are kind of, I mean, we saw it with the lobbying scandal, didn't we? MPs who have big business interests. Um, who are in the pockets of big business. And that's that's why these lobbying organisations exist, because they can they they do it to influence MPs. They yeah. don't just, you know, wine and dine because they like their company. They do it so that MPs are, are voting for the things that they want them to vote for. Yeah. And I, from my experience, from what I've seen, that's very true on the Tory side of the House. Mm. And we saw it, didn't we, actually, with the Owen Paterson scandal, how hardly any Tory MPs voted against the government on that. They voted to protect their friend who had been found by an independent body to have broken lobbying rules. But then the the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, tried to change the rules to um, let him off the hook. Yeah. And most of them voted for it. Yeah, it really is a kind of us and them scenario with that party, I think, isn't it? You know what I mean? It's like they literally do represent the interests of the 1% demographic that most of them are cut from. Yeah, You know, it's just mental to me. I saw a picture of Jacob Rees-Mogg's house that he was raised in, and it's a castle. (laughs) It's like a castle. And like, I know that's not his fault that he was born there, but it it shows that they live in a different world. How are they going to represent the interests of ordinary working and middle-class people when you were raised in a fairy tale castle? Well, exactly. And it's like Rishi Sunak 
said that he didn't have any working class friends. And that's the thing. Not only have they not struggled, but they don't even know anyone who has struggled. Right. They've got no concept of the the impact that their decisions have on people. And it's, it's a huge problem when you've got the richest man in parliament, the richest prime minister in British history, implementing austerity 2.0. Yeah, it's mental. I mean... I don't know how they've managed to maintain such a stranglehold for so long, such a long reign, you know what I mean? But I've got a theory. My theory is that it's because they obviously they play dirty, you know what I mean? And it's a lot easier to sell fear and selfishness and greed than it is to sell abstract notions such as, you know, peace and equality and justice and climate change and workers' rights and things like that. You know, it's a lot easier to appeal to those animalistic tendencies that we've got. And to just scare people with the age-old scapegoats of, you know, immigrants or crime or drugs or, you know, whatever the hell it is. You know, I think humans seem to respond way quicker to those kind of emotional triggers. And, you know, the Tories, they just stamp all over those triggers anytime they want to shove anything through, even no, no matter how detrimental it actually is to most working people's lives. And it seems to work. And I don't know how any opposition can really effectively fight that without also playing some of the same dirty tricks which nobody wants to do so it's a very tricky one especially given that the media are mostly on the side of the elite that's really well put yeah no i completely agree phew (laughs) well speaking of tories and their evil there are tons of really urgent pressing issues currently destroying so many lives in this country um, as a result of the reckless lawless madness of these Tory criminals who've been destroying our country for so long now. Um, So I'd like to hone in on some of those issues. What do you see as being the most urgent pressing issues that we need to address in in our society as a result of, of far too many years of this Tory madness? So I think that there are these kind of dual interlinked crises. There's the climate crisis and the cost of living crisis. Um, and, and also things that like the rise of fascism and the far mm. right, which is extremely concerning across the world. And the kind of the people who benefit from these crises and the people who cause them and contribute to them are the same people, if that makes sense. Like, for example, the energy giants, the, the oil giants who are cashing in from the cost of living crisis are the same people who are paying their workers' poverty wages, who are trashing our planet. Um, and that's why I think actually the solutions are quite simple. Right. Like we need a Green New Deal. We need a genuinely transformative Green New Deal that would create millions of well-paid green jobs in sustainable industries. And I don't mean just manufacturing jobs either, though those are obviously really important. But things like care work is a green job. I used to be a care worker and it's an inherently low carbon job, but it's not at all well paid and the terms and conditions are awful. So, yeah, creating those well paid jobs and tackling the climate crisis at the same time. And that's something that that I'm really passionate about. And I've been pleased to see some commitments on that from my party. So the Labour Party's pledged £28 billion a year for a Green New Deal and also for 100% clean energy by 2030. We would retrofit 90 million homes. Like, imagine if the government had done that, if they'd fixed the roof while the sun was shining. Yeah. We wouldn't be experiencing the kind of 
energy crisis and cost of living crisis that we are now. And that would benefit, so it would benefit people's pockets because they wouldn't have to be paying through the roof just to heat their homes. And it would also benefit the environment. Yeah, 100%. I mean, everything is so interlinked now. I mean, it, it's always been that way in a societal sense, you know, but now it's it's definitely the case on a global level as well in terms of all of our economies and trade and everything is, is interlinked around the world. And, you know, our society has always been that way, you know, regardless of what Margaret Thatcher said about society versus the individual, you know, and, and whether you agree with that or not, the truth of the matter is that we are linked in so many ways and interconnected. And if, if, if in no other way than the global coming climate crisis, which is going to affect all of us. Exactly. It's harming working class people and people in the global south, the worst as well, the people who didn't do anything or like did the least yes. to bring out bring about the crisis and that's from wildfires in australia to floods in bangladesh god even like floods in yorkshire air quality in nottingham that's killing people yeah when i when i think of my community that i represent we've got very high levels of poverty and deprivation so even before the cost of living crisis more than one in three children in Nottingham East were growing up in poverty. I'm genuinely, I'm, I'm just so terrified for many of the people I represent because like three years ago when I first became an MP, I was already speaking to people, my my neighbours, my constituents, people who couldn't afford their rent, who couldn't afford their heating, who weren't able to provide their kids with three hot meals a day. And now... We've got inflation running in double digits. People's heating bills have doubled or even tripled in some cases. And wages and benefits just haven't kept up. So it's ruining people's lives. And the government is just failing to properly support them. So I, I think I find that's probably what I find most frustrating about being in this place. That a lot of Tory MPs who sit opposite me... They just don't seem to grasp that politics has real consequences, that because right. of the decisions that they made, like austerity, for example, that caused over 300,000 excess deaths. That's people who died who would otherwise be alive today yeah. because of the decisions of this government and previous Tory governments. And it really is. It's, it's life and death for people. It's not a game. It's not the Oxford Union. It's not a debating club. Right. It's not about changing the definition of child poverty and then saying that you've solved it or renaming the minimum wage the living wage and then pretending that people can actually live on it when we know they can't yeah 100 percent, and well put as well i mean like i think it's that disconnect isn't it because they don't live in the world that their policies affect so how can they have any grasp on the true reality of the policies that they enact I mean, you've met some of these guys now. One of the things that I've asked several times on this podcast, one of the things that still confuses me is, do they actually believe this stuff? Like I say, you've met some of these dudes now. I mean, you know, you've spoken to them, you've been around them. Do you get the feeling that they actually believe the trickle-down economics, for example, actually works, given that it's been so constantly disproven to be complete nonsense? I mean, you know, what's your feeling? We were actually talking about this in my office the other day like do they actually believe this do they (laughs) when trickle down economics has just been so proven to be a myth 
do do they believe it or are they I, I I don't know I mean what I think it is is that they understand their class interests right it's like who was it who said that the Tories never talk about class war because they're too busy waging it ah yeah but they yeah. they understand whose interests they're they're here to represent what benefits them and what what benefits big businesses landlords um and yeah that's that's the mission that they're here for so we on the other side on the left we need to be standing up for our class interests whether that's parliament fighting for a a much better deal for working people fighting to scrap anti-union laws and for a, a proper minimum wage of something that's more like 15 pounds an hour rather than 10 or whether it's on the picket lines, because as much as we're desperate for a Labour government and the country really is desperate for a Labour government, we're not going to get one tomorrow unless there's an election happening that we haven't been told about. And people in the here and now need to win better better wages and better terms and conditions for themselves. And the only way of doing that is joining a union and going on strike. Bloody hell, mate. This is radical stuff for 2022. Are politicians allowed to say things like this anymore? <laughs> well, I was I was going to ask I'm sorry. you. Sorry, I just had something come up on my phone. Sorry. <laughs> Better be an important email or something. No, it's just my group chat. <laughs> WhatsApp? WhatsApp group? Yeah. Social or, or, or business? Like friends from home. You're not allowed to have friends. You're an MP now. Come on, you're supposed to be, you know... Work, work, work. No joys whatsoever. <laughs> exactly. You, you can't. You can't be enjoying yourself. You can. You know. You, you're not a human. You can't do normal stuff. What's going on? Yeah. Sorry about that. That's all right. I mean, do you want to take five and take a few calls as well? Are we here? No, 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 no. They can wait. Tired of that shit. Well, we um, for those people listening, you you can't see. We both um turned our cameras off at the start of the conversation, um, in order to save the bandwidth for the audio, so that we don't get glitching. I do that sometimes, and I'm starting to think now that Nadia only wanted to do that so that she could send text messages to a WhatsApp group whilst we were doing the chat. It's definitely not, and you can be assured of that because I'm not capable of it. (laughs) Well, we'll take your word for it. Well, I (laughs) wanted to ask you, um, picking up on what you said about not having to, people can't wait, you know, for the next election cycle in order to uh, affect the changes that are going to affect their lives. Um, I wanted to ask what your thoughts were then with regards to uh, activist movements such as Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil and civil disobedience and, and, and civil activism more generally. I think that when we look back at history, at groups that gave us rights that we have now, that won those rights, like the suffragettes, like the civil rights movement, they often took disruptive action that people were really angry about at the time and very hostile towards, but history has vindicated them. And I think history will... I think it will look kindly on people who stood up and raised the alarm on the climate crisis when there was still time to do something about it. I I think groups like that are extremely important and the Labour Party should be kind of the party that is amplifying those messages. I've been really proud to support those kind of social movements in my constituency and 
like beyond as well, like the Kill the Bill movement, Black yeah. Lives Matter protests. I I went to in in my constituency back in 2020. Um, just the other weekend, I was at a, a rally for climate justice in Nottingham, where people were, yeah, recognizing the the joint crises that we have and the unfairness of it. Good for you, man. I wish more politicians were saying things like this. You know, I mean, the Kill the Bill campaign, I, I was involved a little bit in that. You know, I did um, some performances for them. And one that I did with Jeremy Corbyn outside Parliament. Oh, um, we probably saw each other. Oh, were you there? Yeah, yeah. In fact, I was at the, the very first one um, a couple of days before outside Scotland Yard. And then we marched oh, to Parliament. Wow. It was incredible. Yeah, it was a really good campaign, then, a really good movement, and it it really felt like it was going to be effective as well because the ones that I went to, there was loads of people there, man. You know what I mean? Uh, like, like I say, Jeremy Corbyn would get up and speak, and there was all sorts of other awesome like campaigners and stuff, and I would do a few tunes, and yeah, you know, there was loads of people, and it was a really consistent and relentless campaign as well. It, it really felt like this is people power at its best. And then you know when when it went to the Lords, and you know they were sending, yeah. they were rejecting it, and sending it back amendments it felt like oh wow we might actually win this one you know and then when it went through and they passed it and made you know effectively made public protest a criminal act it felt a bit like why isn't this front page of every newspaper and news channel in in the country you know what i mean and it's the reason why they're cracking down on protest and they're cracking down on trade unions taking action is that they're scared of the power that people have when they come together and make demands they know that protest works that industrial works and that's why they don't want people to do it so we've got to keep defending those rights by going out on the streets and exercising them yeah damn right when they um when the, when it was when they said it was going to be going through you know i i, I tweeted which is the extent of my influence because that's all that i could do um i said you know we, we've got to go out and make more noise you know because one of the conditions was that if you make if you're being noisy then they could shut the protest down i was like well then we've got to go out and make more noise you know because that is the whole point of protest yeah, exactly. you, know, you, don't, you don't ask you know to be listened to you that, that's just not how change has ever happened you have to do it you know so i i i'm I'm not sure if you if you would be able to say like publicly on a podcast like this, but I personally applaud like just stop oil throwing soup over the um, the Van Gogh painting because what's more important, you know, a painting or the impending destruction of the planet we live on, you know? So the, these um, disruptive activist actions, I think, are becoming increasingly important in a in a country, if not a world, where the political process is being co opted by something else. I think that people say that, um, you know, like protest can be annoying and it's like, yeah, obviously it can be. Protest is kind of meant to be annoying. People didn't win their rights just by saying, like, oh, can I have the vote, please? (laughs) And when we're looking at groups like XR and Just Stop Oil, whatever inconvenience they're causing, that pales in comparison to the impact that the climate crisis will have if we fail to take action what are your thoughts on the climate crisis because it seems to me like we are we are dangerously close to um being past the point of no return now what are are your thoughts on that i think that cop 27 um which has come to a close was overall just a, a complete failure there was some progress on 
loss and damage, which was a really important win for climate justice campaigners. But ultimately, we don't have a concrete plan to keep global temperatures under 1.5 degrees. There's a total lack of ambition on fossil fuels. There's no commitment to phasing out or or even phasing down fossil fuels beyond coal. Ultimately, I just think that the planet can't afford to have any more of these missed opportunities or these watered down pledges with no accountability. And we can see, can't we, that the climate crisis is already here, that people are already suffering the the effects of it. It's not some thing in the future. So, yeah, if world leaders don't step up, then history won't forgive them. Yeah, you bang on then. And tell me about the, the climate education bill. So I've been working since I was elected on a climate education bill with um, school students from Teach the Future. And it's basically calling for climate education to be on the national curriculum and to be woven through like a golden thread. So across primary, secondary, vocational courses, because at the moment we only learn about climate change in optional subjects. So like GCSE, geography and triple science. But we're saying it should be taught in every subject. So, for example, like food technology, learning about sustainable diets, sustainable food production, English, learning about pieces of texts that have been written by um, people through like a, a climate change lens. Um, vocational courses as well, like plumbing courses, for example, learning how to install low carbon heating systems all of that kind of thing um and i'm really pleased that we've got support from the labor party front bench so it's now labor party policy that oh wow we will do this um and we've also got support from um people on the conservative benches too so the um chair of the education select committee the environmental audit select committee and the business and energy select committee who the business select committee chair is a Labour MP but the other two are Tories so we've made really significant progress that is amazing man what things have gone up and running you know congrats to you man because that is such a great idea and yeah I mean like when I was in school you know climate change wasn't even a thing you know what I mean it's like it didn't even exist you know the notion that we did anything remotely harmful to the environment was you know whilst we were spraying a gazillion gallons of hairspray on our 80s perms you know just didn't didn't factor at all you know what i mean and to see how far the threat of climate change has advanced just in my lifetime i think it's really really important now that the new generations the younger generations coming up now do understand you know from a really young age um just how much everything has an environmental impact from our diet and the food we eat and the way that it's grown and transport and retail and, um, you know, manufacturing and lifestyle and travel and everything is connected to the environment. I think that's a really, really cool idea, man. So props to you for doing that. There's also about like recognizing that if we, if our education system isn't equipping people to deal with the impacts of the climate crisis that are already here to be part of the solution to the climate crisis, then it's completely failing them. 100%. Yeah, another great point, man. Um, It is the, unfortunately, the generations coming up now who stand to be the most disadvantaged by the damage done to the environment of my generation and then, of course, the boomers, who we all love (laughs) immensely. Um, 
I personally, this issue freaks me out. I personally, when I look at the figures and I look at the science and I look at the trajectory, I personally wonder sometimes whether it's too late and it's an issue that really bums me out and really, really worries me because, you know, the middle of the century is not that far away. Um, and it's your generation and the, and, the, and the younger generation coming up behind you that is going to be at the prime of their life at that point. So, I mean, how do you feel about it? You know, are you, are you hopeful? Um. I do feel hopeful. I don't get my hope from the government or from governments around the world, but I feel hopeful because of climate justice activists from school climate strikers demanding these things and that there there have been some wins, not enough wins and not fast enough. But I feel I feel hopeful about the role that a Labour government will play in bringing down global emissions because, yeah, people say, oh, what we do doesn't matter if China isn't decarbonising or India isn't decarbonising. And obviously countries that are kind of so-called like more more developed who in in many cases have benefited from the exploitation and colonisation of countries in the global south, obviously we need to be taking steps to decarbonize even faster than those other countries so that we meet our global targets. Yeah, well, I think we've got a colonial debt to repay much of the rest of the world, in all honesty, in this country. And if that takes the form of having to take a lead on emissions reductions, then I think that's small change considering how much we've looted and exploited much of the global south in particular for hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah, and all countries need to decarbonise, but we need to lead the way. Totally. Because we have we have the wealth and the, the kind of economy that is equipped to be able to do that. Well, I'm glad that you're hopeful because ultimately that's all we've got, isn't it? You know, hope is the is the energy that keeps us fighting. You know what I mean? Even if it seems entirely futile at times. But like as you as you alluded to earlier, you know, you've got to take those wins, however small they may be, and use that as the fuel to keep you pushing uphill. Because it's the only way anything's ever changed. And if you don't have hope and you don't have morale, then you've already lost the fight, you know? So I'm glad that you're hopeful and I'm really really glad that we've got the the generation coming up now that we've got because the younger generation now are absolutely awesome in my eyes I think those guys are amazing yeah, um, 100%. but bringing it from the global back to the national why are we in a cost of living crisis right now given everything that you just correctly said about the state of our economy being this, as strong as it is on the global stage why are people unable to pay their gas bill So obviously part of it is a global crisis, that that's a global energy crisis. But when the Tories keep saying that, it ignores their their own responsibility and their own part in this because that isn't the full picture. So we know that the prices were already going up. People's bills were already going up before Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine. Um, We were also particularly badly equipped to deal with these kind of global shocks because of 12 years of austerity. Mm. So things like um, the war in Ukraine, but also like the pandemic, we know that we were particularly badly equipped to deal with that because of austerity. That was why we didn't have enough PPE on the front lines. That's why our um, health service and the social care sector was completely overwhelmed because it had been underinvested in and cut and overstretched over 
the the last decade. Yeah. So that's kind of the causes of it. But if we're thinking about the solutions, what we can't do is keep making cuts. Everyone knows that if you're in a recession, you can't keep cutting. That's like trying to get yourself out of a hole by digging even deeper. It doesn't work. It just shrinks the economy and then people suffer even more. So what the government should be doing instead is investing to grow the economy, investing in our public services so that they're more resilient. That also means that businesses are more likely to want to invest because they don't just look at things like taxation. They also look at kind of the broader picture, like what are health outcomes like, what's right. inequality like, what are public services like in, in the places that they're wanting to invest. And then on taxation, the government needs to be taxing the right people. You can't increase taxes on people whose wages haven't gone up since 2008. Yeah. You have to be taxing people who can afford to pay more. So that means taxing the billionaires who've increased their profits by 55 billion every year means taxing the corporations who've been cashing in on the energy crisis and on the cost of living crisis. I, I think it was the CEO of BP who described the cost of living crisis as a cash machine. Wow. Well, not for not for people I represent, for him and his, his shareholders, sure. But that just shows that they need to be properly taxed. Also, things like um, closing tax loopholes. So one of the things that the Labour Party has pledged is that we'd close the non-DOM tax loophole, which is basically it's the loophole that allows you to live in this country but pay your taxes somewhere else yeah. to avoid tax. It's what Rishi Sunak's wife used to avoid paying tax in this country. And the the really sad thing, and the thing that makes me so angry, is that every penny that we lose in tax avoidance, we're losing from our NHS, yeah. from our education system, from being able to invest in infrastructure. So yeah, that's that's what I, I think the the problems and the solutions are. Boom. Jesus, nailed it, man, from every angle. Yeah, no further questions, Your Honour. <laughs> Love it. Well, Nadia, look, I know that you've got to go. So uh, I want to squeeze in one last question just before I let you go. I'd like to get a feel for those that don't know what Nadia Whittam's personal manifesto is. What is it that Nadia Whittam stands for? I guess the really radical idea that people should be able to live comfortably and have proper control in their lives the vast majority of people are struggling in some way or not having it as good as we could have it. And that's because of those at the top creaming off the profits from people's labour, exploiting workers, exploiting the planet. And I want a world where we have a planet that we can live on, where people can live comfortably and happily, where people are, are paid properly for their work and can access the services that they need. And particularly where I think people who are very marginalised, like sex workers, trans people, disabled people, people of colour, have power and have a seat at the table. Amen. 
Man, I'm so glad I asked. <laughs> Nadia, I know you've got to go because I know your assistant is lingering and you've got to run to your next meeting. So thank you so, so much for giving us your time. I really do appreciate it. It's been so fun no, to meet you and to it. chat with you. Um, thank you once again for the brilliant and tireless work that you do. You're definitely on the right side of history and we appreciate you, man. I want you to know that. Yeah, like uh, if I lived in Nottingham East, you'd have my vote without a shadow of a doubt. <laughs> Don't ever let me steal your fire and keep making those old men uncomfortable for us. Thank you so much. It's been so fun talking to you. Nadia Whittam, ladies and gentlemen, Member of Parliament for Nottingham East. Let's hear it for her. Man, she dropped some truth bombs throughout that chat, man. It was, it was good to hear some good old traditional Labour values being promoted there after the, uh, the party that we all know and love has been besieged for so long by, you know, the Blairites and the careerists and the backstabbers, you know? And it's so nice to hear that that kind of sense of optimism and hope and fight and fire that Nadia's got. Um, and I really hope that she continues to scare those dusty old men that are t- way too comfortable in that job half to death. You see, they're not all bad, man. They're not all bad. If you want to follow Nadia on Twitter, you can check her out at Nadia Whittam MP. That is uh, N-A-D-I-A-W-H-I-T-T-O-M-E-M-P. Go and show us some love and support. It's, you know, it's very important on social media for the, the people that support you to actually show up and show that support because the trolls are working overtime, baby. Trust me. You know, if the people that say they support me and agree with me were anywhere near as active and energetic as the trolls who hate me, then I'd have a bit more of a spring in my step some days. <laughs> As always, I hope you enjoyed the chat. I mean, even if you don't agree, I hope it was still good food for thought and stimulus for debate. And as always, if you could help me out by hitting the subscribe button and hitting some star ratings and just genuinely hitting some stuff, that would be awesome. Unless, of course, you happen to be either of the three police officers that I've mentioned at the start of this, in which case you fuckers need to stop hitting everything right away. As I said, lots more to come on that escapade. Just watch this space. And in the meantime, as always, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and I shall see you next time. Love ya.